Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, we love you, and God, we thank you for just your love for us. Lord, we thank you for your provision that you provided a way for us to um, be saved and to be able to enter into your family, to be redeemed from our sin and shame. And, and Lord, we just love to respond to that in, in loving you, following you, giving of our tithes and offerings. Lord, all of that is just a response to what you have done for us. And God, we pray today that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would do a work in us. God, I pray for anybody here today that maybe doesn't know you, that today they would come to see the wonderful gift of salvation that is available to us through Jesus Christ. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, we left off in our last study in the book of Acts, seeing Paul move from Thessalonica, where he was literally run out of town, and he comes to the city of Berea, and Berea was a bright spot. It was a, in Paul's whole missionary journeys, it was the probably the most refreshing place that he visited because the Bereans love the word of God. They devoured the word of God. They were students of the word of God. And so he was so blessed in Berea until some guys came from Thessalonica and they were seeking to come after him again and to kill him again and stir up the people in Berea. So the Bereans, out of their love for Paul, got Paul out of town and they brought him by sea. He comes to the city of Athens. And while in Athens, Paul sees a gigantic need. It was a huge city. He calls for his friends, Timothy and Silas, who had stayed back in Berea to disciple the new believers, he calls for them to come, to come and join him. Now today, that would have been really simple, right? He pulls out his iPhone, sends a little text and says, Athens is crazy. I need you guys here. And he'd get back from, you know, them a little uh, thumbs up or a smiley face or a little happy claps. But in that day and age, that's not how it worked. They would have to send a messenger who would travel by boat and it would take a couple of weeks and then they'd have to get their stuff together and come back. So we're, we're talking, you know, Paul was there for a good, probably, you know, three weeks to a month at least waiting for them to come. And so the question that we're going to consider today and look at is what did Paul do while he was waiting for his friends to arrive? And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Pause right there and give me your attention. I want us to consider today this word provoke. The title of the message is when the world stabs you in the heart. And um, we're going to see why I called it that in just a moment. But the word provoked means being poked by something sharp. It's being irritated. Think, think maybe of a, of a sucker punch or something that just, you know, you hear some news that just stabs you in the heart. Any of you ever been sucker punched before? You know, when I was a junior in high school playing on the basketball team at my uh, high school, during a few of our practices, I would be, you know, going and I'd go to set a screen like you do in basketball. And these guys that were on my own team would punch me in the guts. 
I was a junior, they were seniors, they thought I was going to take their spot, and so that was their way of trying to intimidate me. So that was a literal sucker punch. But sometimes life has a way of punching you in the gut, of stabbing you in the heart. It happens a lot of times when you get news that you never wanted to hear. This past week, I got a text from a friend of mine in Oregon notifying me that a pastor that I was beginning to to get to know, a guy that I really, really liked, a sharp guy, a good teacher, a guy with a, a, a great mind, amazing potential. He had just, a little over a year ago, became the pastor of this great church up there. This text notified me that he had announced he was stepping down because he had just committed adultery. And man, that stabbed me in the heart. I immediately thought about his wife and his precious kids and the pain that they were experiencing. I thought about his parents, or her parents actually, that I knew very, very well. I thought about his mom, who just last year had had to bury her husband because he had died suddenly. And so my heart was just in pain for for over a week. I reached out on Thanksgiving to his wife's dad to just say, hey, I'm praying for you guys, and I'm here. I'm available if you need me at all. But things like that, they stab you in the heart. I think about five years ago, November 19th, 2018, it was my birthday, early in the morning. I'm lying in bed, and, and I get a, a phone call, and it's from my sister-in-law, Sherry. I'm thinking that she's calling to you know, wish me happy birthday, and I'm thinking, man, she's calling kind of early, thinking maybe she wanted to be the first one. I say hello, and on the other side of the line, she is hysterical. She can't talk. She's just weeping because her son, my nephew, Anthony, an amazing young man, loved Jesus, was taken from us that day to, in a car accident. He went home to be with the Lord. And that kind of thing, it stabs you in the heart. It rocks your world, and you never get over that. It's even harder for my brother and and Sherry and their daughter, Allie. And for me personally, I have not celebrated my birthday on my birthday ever since. And I don't know that I ever will, because it just kind of doesn't seem right to do that. I share those stories to give you a sense of what Paul was experiencing when he came into Athens. His, what, what he saw there provoked his heart. He sees what's going on in Athens and it just stabs him in the heart. There's this deep pain. There's this deep irritation. And the word provoked also carries the idea of an anger that is arising. And so it's a stab that begins to boil. And that's what's happening in Paul. And it moves him to do something. And I want us to consider today what Paul did in Athens. But first I want us to consider what provoked him. There's three things that we see. The first is all the idols. Notice again in verse 16 it says, When he saw that the city was given over to idols. When you went into Athens, there were idols and shrines everywhere. 
Shrines to this God and that God. And in fact, it had, it had been said that it was easier to find a God, an idol in Athens than it was to find a man. They worshiped everything. They worshiped mammon. Those were the money worshipers, and they were easy to spot. They, they were the people who were all about their appearance, all about their stuff. They were the guys going around dressing the nines and just, you know, wanted everyone to know that, that they were loaded. And then there were those who worshiped the god Mars. Mars was the chief of the gods. The Greeks called him Zeus, but when the Romans over uh, took the, the Greeks, they adopted many of their gods but gave them new names and so those who worshiped mars the chief god they were the fighters they they were the guys who would be you know dressed in muscle search and and jogger pants you know that was that group of guys and then there were those who worshiped the god bacchus he was the party god so they were the drunkards they were the the frat boys who were just out of control and then there were those who worshipped Venus. She was the sex god. And, and just so those who were all into her were all about seduction. This is where the prostitutes hung out. And they, there were idols just everywhere. And they worshipped everything. And so Paul saw this, all the idols, and he was provoked. The second thing that provoked Paul was in seeing what they worshipped and how it affected their behavior. You know, there's a saying that says that you become like what you worship. And so Paul sees all of the idols and he sees how it's affecting their behavior, that, that the Athenians were just given to things that didn't satisfy them and that their, idol, their idolatry was perpetuating a loneliness and a emptiness and a recklessness in the very fabric of their culture. And so Paul could see all that was happening and he was provoked in his spirit. The third thing that provoked him was that Paul knew what happened in Athens didn't stay in Athens. That Athens was the epicenter of idolatry and philosophy. And the Athenians were spreading their decadence and immorality all over the Roman Empire. And this provoked Paul. You see, Athens was having a negative effect on the entire world, including Paul's homeland, Israel. You see, the Romans were building cities all over Israel, and with those cities came their immorality and their idolatry. I'll give you an example. There was the city Bet-Shean, and Bet-Shean was this incredible, huge city. It was the home of the Hippodrome where they did their chariot races. There was this gigantic theater that was there. And so I want you to picture this. Imagine living in some little village in Israel, and all of a sudden, here comes the Romans and others there's all these construction crews that are coming in and they start laying down these marble streets and they start building all of these structures in the midst in the shadow of your little village and then they would take and they would build a temple to their God up on the hill overlooking the city that's what was happening all over Israel. Bet Shean was the capital of what was known as the Decapolis. Decapolis means 10 cities. Deca means 10. Polis means cities. And so the Romans built 10 massive cities all over Israel. There was Caesarea Philippi. There was Caesarea Maritime. 
And there, were all, there was Bet Shean. There was all these different cities. And everywhere they built, they brought their influence with them. Their immorality with them. Their, their, their idolatry with them. I mean, it would almost be like, like picturing you live in Bonzel and just to the south of Bonzel where some of that empty land is, they build Las Vegas, you know, that that comes in. That was kind of the, the vibe. That was what was happening. And so Paul was provoked. Can I ask you this question? What gets you provoked? Does it happen when you see the godless ideologies infiltrating our society? Our schools? Does it get you provoked? Does that cause there to be this sharp just stab and pain in your heart? Does it happen when you read or watch the evening news and you just see the craziness going on in our world? Does that turn your heart sick? Does that, does that cause some, some righteous indignation to maybe boil up inside of you? When we see our world becoming more and more anti-God and more and more against Jesus and more and more evil and more and more immoral, that should cause us to be provoked as followers of Jesus. The question is, what do we do about that? What are we doing about that? What did Paul do? Did Paul retreat? Did Paul go and move into a monastery and just seek to isolate himself from the world? No, he didn't do that. You see, Paul understood very clearly what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, when he prayed that God, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. So he didn't retreat. No, he didn't isolate himself. He dove in. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who had happened to be there. And look at the verse, end of verse 18. And he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. What did Paul do? He talked to as many people as he possibly could about Jesus. You see, Paul understood something that need to understand and it was this that the answer was not in reformation it wasn't in reform you see reform can change laws that affect people's behavior but it doesn't change the heart Paul understood that the answer was not in reform, but it was in regeneration because that's when God changes the heart. God begins to do a work on the inside that affects our life on the outside. And so Paul, what does he do? He preached Jesus. We see here that he follows his normal custom of starting in the synagogue, that he goes in and be into the synagogue, and his focus on, is on those who were following Judaism. But he doesn't just focus on the religious folks. He also goes into the marketplace. And I kind of picture this in my mind. I like to, when I'm reading the Bible, kind of put myself into the story. And so I picture Paul one morning, you know, he goes to the local coffee shop and he's standing in line and he's next to somebody and he says, you know, hey, is this place any good? Is coffee here good? And they're like, yeah, it's really good. Are you new in town? Yeah, I am. Why, why are you here? Well, I'm on a mission. <laughs> I'm on a mission to tell people about the one who changed my life. 
That's what Paul's doing here. He's going into the, the, the marketplace, and as he's seeking to talk to people, he's seeking how he can move the conversation to Jesus and the resurrection. Now, understand this. When the New Testament writers speak of the resurrection, they were not only talking about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The word resurrection speaks of the reality that there is life after death. So we could say that Paul, being provoked, he preaches Jesus, to them and the reality that there's more to this life than this life. That there's something that comes after this. That there's really two choices for man. It's either eternal life or eternal death. And so Paul is sharing with everyone he can. And watch what happens. Look at verse 18. It says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Now, being called a babbler is a major insult to a preacher. I just got to say that. <laughs> I'm thankful that I've never been called that, although I bet you some of you have thought it, but but I've never been, been called that. There was a time once when I was preaching in England, and after the message, like all these people in the church came up to me, and they, they were thanking me for being there, and they said that the message was brilliant. And, and, and I was like thinking to myself, you know, I thought it was good, but brilliant, you know, that's kind of like really up there. I found out later that in, in Britain and England, to say that it, something's brilliant is like the way we say it was good. So they were just being polite, you know, hey, thanks for being here, it was good. You know, I mean, that's what they were, that's what they were saying. But these guys are accusing Paul of babbling. Who were these guys? These Epicurean and Stoic philosophers represented the two popular philosophies of the day in the Roman Empire. And these two philosophies are still very much alive in our day and age. They just have different names today. Because today when you hear the word Epicurean, you think of somebody who's a foodie. You know, somebody who's into food stuff, watches all the food shows and, and posts things, you know, food dishes and stuff on their Pinterest that they're really into. That Stoics today, we think of somebody who just kind of controls their emotions. Somebody who's just kind of really, you know, even killed, never gets riled up. You know, something bad happens. And you're like, hey, man, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm good. Something great happens. And like, hey, are you excited? Oh, I'm good. You know, that's kind of what we think of, of the stoic. You know, we have a nickname here at Calvary Vista for Eddie Hill, who was playing bass today. Eddie's on our pastoral staff. He's, he's uh, kind of our, our CFO here at the church. And, and we call him Steady Eddie because he never gets riled. I mean, I've known him for, I think, 40 years now, and he never, he's, he's never ever gets riled. I call him the happy stoic because he's kind of always positive, but his emotions never waver. There was one time I was talking to him on the phone, and he says to me, I am really, really mad right now. And I'm like, stay right there. I'm coming over. I have to see this. You know, it's like, <laughs> I've never seen him mad, you know? That's what we think of when we think of Epicureans and Stoics. But in Paul's day and age, it was different. These two philosophies represented the two dominant worldviews of the day. Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, believed that the two most important things in life were personal happiness and pleasure. 
Now, you could see where that philosophy could lead someone down a road of just, you know, partying and wild living. But Epicurus was smart, and he thought that through, and he realized that if somebody was just purely living for pleasure, and they're just going out and partying and getting wasted all the time, that they'd end up, you know, drunk and in the gutter, and they'd just be ruining their life. And that wouldn't be happiness. So he put some reasonable boundaries in his life, but his overall theme in life was seeking tranquility and what we might call good vibes. His philosophy was treat others right, enjoy life, pursue experiences and pleasure, but just don't go overboard. Live for the moment, live for experiences. And how many people today do we know that that's how they live? That they live in that way, that they approach life just living in the moment and not thinking at all about the future. Not thinking at all about their eternal destiny. Now, Epicurus developed this philosophy because of his view of where we came from as well as of where we are going. Where did he think we came from? Well, Epicurus believed in something called atomism, not Adam like the first man, but A-T-O-M. And atomism believes that man was not created by a higher being that we Christians would call God. But atomism believes that life came into being as a result of atoms converging together. Now, you might hear that and think that sounds like Darwinism, you know, Darwin's view of origins. That was just kind of this random occurrence. Well, Darwin didn't come up with that view. Greek philosophers had espoused that view for a very, very long time, long before Darwin came along. So Epicurus bought into this view of origins called atomism, which meant that we don't come from a creator or a higher being. And so that was his view of where we came from, and that affected his view of where we are going. You see, if there's no creator, that means there's no judgment. If there's no creator, that means there's no one that we are going to have to stand and answer for our life. That if there's no creator, there's no eternal judge that we're going to answer to. So this life is all that we get. So let's live live it to the fullest. That was the philosophy of the Epicureans. And that's the predominant philosophy that was in Paul's day. And that's a predominant philosophy in our day and age today. The Stoics, however, were different. They were the moralist of their day. They developed their own guide for what was right and wrong, and they believed in a supreme being and an established standard of right and wrong in the eyes of this supreme being. That would, if you lived according to that standard, that you would be accepted by this supreme being or these supreme beings. And so they sought to live by this standard that made them think that they were better than anyone else who didn't live up to that standard. This was also a this was also a popular philosophy in Paul's day, and it's a popular philosophy in our day and age today as well. There are people who love to create their own standards of good and bad. In fact, you ask some people today, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And their, their answer is, is they'll say something like, as long as my good outweighs my bad. Listen, that might be how it works with Santa Claus, but that's not how it works with, with God, all right? Because if you could be good enough to get into heaven by what you did, Jesus would not have come to die. He wouldn't have had to come and die and pay the price for our sins. Because the Bible says very clearly that none of us were good enough. 
So in Athens, there were these two predominant philosophies, and those philosophies still exist today. So Paul shows up and he sees what is going on in Athens. He sees these people caught up in this idolatrous lifestyle. He sees these other people who are trying really, really hard to live by some moral standard. And what does he do? He's provoked in his heart. And what does he do? He preaches Jesus and the resurrection. The Stoics and the Epicureans, they accuse him of babbling. They they mock him. But notice the second part of verse 18. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean for all the Athenians and the foreigners who spent their time in nothing else but eating either to tell or to hear of some new thing. The Areopagus, also known as the God Mount or Mars Hill, was the mountain of the chief god Mars. It was on Mars Hill that the Athenians would gather to talk philosophy. And in verse 21, we see the Athenians prided themselves in being free thinkers and forward thinkers, that they were open to, hey, let's consider, come up to Mars let's consider this new thing. So they give Paul an opportunity to speak. We'll pick it up, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now note that. What's he doing here? Paul is looking for common ground. So he's looking and going, hey, I I see you guys are, you're really, really religious. One of the things I I try to do in in looking for common ground when, you know, I'm at a coffee shop and I can engage somebody or I'm in a restaurant or if I'm on a flight somewhere, I'll often ask this question. I would encourage you to do this. I'll say, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? You know one thing people love to do, most people love to do, they love to talk about themselves. So they love to say, as a matter of fact, I do. This is what I believe. And you might have to listen for like 30 minutes as they espouse their thing. But then they're going to come to a point, just don't do it too close to landing. But you know, they're gonna, you're going to come to a point where they're going to say, what about you? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? And there's your open door. Say, as a matter of fact, I do. And you can tell them what Jesus has done in your life. This is what Paul's doing. He's looking for some common ground. So he says, I perceive that you guys are very religious. So Paul declares, men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one who you worship without knowing, him I will proclaim to you. And what Paul's going to do here is he's going to proceed to tell them four things about God that I want us to note today. Number one, he tells them that God is the creator. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by So he says, first of all, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. He's the creator. And he's so big. He's so amazing. He's so awesome. He cannot dwell in temples made by hands. 
Now, I can picture the Epicureans kind of stiffening up as he's talking about this because they don't believe in a creator God, right? So keep that in your mind. Then he says in verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands. You can't make an idol of him as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, Paul says something here really, really interesting. There in verse 26, he says that they all have the same blood. In other words, what he's saying is that we're all the same. All of us are the same. Now, that flies in the face of most religious philosophies, doesn't doesn't it? Because most religious philosophies draw a line in the sand that separates good people from bad people. Most religious philosophies say if you follow this standard and this way of belief, you will be a good person. And if you don't, then you are a bad person and you're not accepted by this religion or by our God. And you know, it's interesting if we really think about it. Politics today does exactly the same thing. Both the left and the right say, if you believe like us, you are good. And if you don't, then you are bad. Religion does that. Politics does that. You know who doesn't do that? Christianity doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says that we all came from the same blood and that all of us are bad. That we are all sinners. I mean, think about this, parents. Do you have to teach your kids how to be good or how to be bad? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Being bad comes naturally. It's like, you know, I ask my grandson sometimes, she'll say, she'll say why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I know why he did it. It's that thing inside of him. It's that, that sin nature. Do you have to teach your kids how to lie or tell the truth? You never have. Okay, I'm going to sit you down, a little education on how to tell a whopper. No, you don't have to do that. It comes naturally to them. It just flows out of them. Why? Because the Bible says that we are all sinners. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, there are none righteous at all. And when you hear the word righteous, think perfect. So the opposite of perfect is imperfect. So the opposite of righteousness is unrighteousness. And the Bible says that that's all of us. There's none of us who are righteous. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the implication there is all of us are sin. We've fallen short of God's glory, so we all need to be saved. We all need a Savior, but here's the blessing. God made a way for unrighteous people to be declared righteous, and that was through what Jesus did on the cross. That Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, to pay, take the punishment that we deserved. I love how Paul writes uh, about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says that God made a way for us to be reconciled to God when he, when he says this. For he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So put this this way. Jesus became sin-filled. He took all the sin of the world upon himself. Jesus became sin-filled so that sin-filled people like you and I could become sin-free. 
Or someone else put it this way, that God treated Jesus as if he lived your life and my life so that he could treat us as if we lived Jesus's life. That's what Jesus did for us. He made a way for unrighteous people to be made righteous in the eyes of God. So Paul is declaring a really important truth that apart from Jesus, we're all the same. We all have the same blood. We're all sinners. Now, how do you think that made the Stoics feel? The moralist. I mean, they're, they're looking, they're listening to Paul going, are, are you trying to tell me, Paul, that me, who tries to live by, you know, be good and live by this moral, I, I'm the same as that guy who was worshiping Bacchus last night and woke up in the gutter today? I don't think so, Paul. You see, Paul, you can kind of sense the tension rising, Right? Between the Epicureans and the Stoics, Paul's being an equal opportunity offender here, you know, <laughs> as he's talking to them. I got to be honest, sometimes I sense that in this room. I'll bring up something and I see some of you start to tense up, start to look at your watch. But I see the person next to you with a big smile on their face. Because they know you. They know what's going on. They, they know why you're tensing up, you know, and, and, and they're hoping. And I want to encourage you who are smiling when they haven't, start praying that, that there's a breakthrough, you know, in that moment. So this is what's happening. So Paul says first that God is the creator, that he has created us all the same, that we're sinners in need of a savior. And notice again in verse 26, it says, and, and God has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This is so interesting. Paul's saying that God has put boundaries around our lives, that he's boxed us in. And the next verse tells us why. Look at verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's the second thing that Paul is telling them about God, is that, that God who created us, created us to know him. He wants us to know him. And Paul says God puts boundaries around our lives and he brings us to a place where we feel boxed in. He brings us to a place where, where we kind of come to the end of ourselves so that we might seek after him. And you know, that's the story of many of you in this room. If not all of you in this room, and I want to ask you, for those of you who have been saved for a while, can you remember back to when you felt boxed in? Can you remember back to when you, you, you kind of came to the end of yourself where you felt like the world was just closing in around you and you felt lost and you felt hopeless and you cried out to God and he answered you? Our text tells us God does that, brings us into those boxed-in situations so that we might grope for him is the way it puts it. I like the way the CSB version puts it, that we might reach out and find him. And the ESV puts it this way, that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Do you remember what that felt like? Maybe you're here today and that's the place that you're in right now. You've been just, you feel boxed in like you've come to the end of yourself. You've been wrestling with so many different things. I want you to know this. 
God is near to you. He's not far from you. Notice the text. He's not far from us. He's near to us. He's at the door of your heart today, knocking. If you just open up the door of your heart by putting your faith in Jesus, he's going to come in. This is what I love about Christianity. To to become a follower of of Jesus, to to become somebody who moves from being unrighteous to righteous, to to be someone who is is saved and, and welcomed into the family of God, you don't have to climb some mountain to find God. You don't have to go through all and follow all these different rules and regulations. All you need to simply do is to believe in Jesus and cry out to him. I love how Paul put it in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's that simple. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, that that can be your reality today. Just confess, just cry out to him. But you know what? Even after we come to Christ, God still allows boundaries to be put around our lives. Do you realize that? He still allows us at times because he's working in our lives to feel boxed in. He still does that because he's still trying to get us, even as followers of Jesus, just in a different way now, to the end of ourselves. So that we can experience his power in our weakness. So we can watch and see how he shows up in our life. Paul the Apostle, he, he, he spoke about this. He, he talked about how he found himself in a place where he had this illness, this infirmity of some sort that just oppressed him. And he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take it away. And Jesus said to him, Paul, I'm not going to do that. Because in the midst of your infirmity, you are going to discover this, that my grace is sufficient for you and that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul wrote about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And I love this verse. Because I want you to notice, Jesus didn't say, my strength is survived in weakness. He doesn't say, hey, you're, when you're strong, you're great, but when you're weak, you're just okay. You're just kind of adequate. No, he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. The Amplified Version puts it this way, my strength is fulfilled and complete in your weakness. Isn't that beautiful? Kenneth Weiss, the great... Um, Greek scholar, he, I love how he uh, says this verse reads in the Greek. He says, my power is moment by moment coming to its full energy and complete operation in the sphere of weakness. That's what Paul was discovering. God allows us to come into these boxed in situations where we feel weak so that he has this opportunity to show up and show himself strong. And that led Paul to respond in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10. He says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, the first few times you find yourself in that boxed-in situation, the first few times that you find yourself in that difficulty, the way Paul responds right there, that, that's not our 
instinctive or natural response. It's more like the children of Israel when they were released from Egypt and they're going through the wilderness and they find themselves boxed in at the Red Sea. They have Mount Pihira on one side, Mount Migdal on the other side. Their back is to the Red Sea and here comes Pharaoh and his army barreling down on them. Were they rejoicing? No, they started, they do what we often do. They started complaining. Moses, you've led us here to die. What is God doing with us? That's, that's how we normally respond. But when you've seen God show up a few times, when you've seen God show his power in the midst of your weakness, when you've seen God do something amazing and part the Red Sea and work miracles, you learn to respond in, this, in, in the way that Paul did. I wonder what God's going to do this time. It's kind of exciting. What's going on? How's God going to show up? What is he going to do? Well, back to our story in Acts. So Paul tells them that God is their creator. Second, he tells them that God is near to them and wants us to know him. The third thing Paul tells them is found in verses 28 and 29. Notice he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, so he's quoting from their own poets, another smart thing he's doing here, just being you know, kind of relevant to where they were at. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that can be shaped by art and man's devising. The, the third thing he tells them is that you can't shape God into the image that you want him to be. And that's totally what they were doing with all of their idols. They were forming all of these idols to look like what they wanted their gods to be. You know, my grandkids, they love to play when they come over with Play-Doh. And we have these different shapes. There's the star and there's the triangle and there's the man. And, you know, they'll press it in and they'll pull it out. Listen, you, you can't do that with God. You can't shape God into the image that, that you want him to be. But people love to try and do that. They, 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 they like, it's kind of like for many of them, it's like ordering, you know, a latte at a, a coffee shop. The way they want to shape God. It's like, a, I'll have my God with a little less holiness and a lot more mercy, you know. Or they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know, I want my God to be loving and accepting of everyone and not judgmental at all. Do you know it's true that God loves everyone? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's everybody, that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world. He loved everyone in it. He sent Jesus to bring salvation to human beings. God loves everyone, but he doesn't accept everyone because the second half of that verse says that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves everyone, but he only accepts those who believe in Jesus and his way and the plan of salvation that was adopted by him. So God cannot be shaped by us into the image that we want him to be. But people seek to do that. We can't shape God, but God is seeking to shape us into the image of Jesus. Notice verse 28 again. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul's essentially saying, listen, God doesn't exist for us. This God. This unknown God, he doesn't exist for us, but we exist for him. 
That true living happens when you realize that it's in him that you live and move and have your being. As you're living to seek, to just glorify him. So God is our creator. God wants us to know us. We cannot shape God into our own image. He wants to shape us into him image. And number four, we are all going to stand before God one day and give an account for our lives. Look at verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, look, here's the deal. We're all going to have to give an account. This God who created us, who wants to know us, who cannot be shaped by us, we're all going to have to stand before him and give an account one day. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, and it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Listen, we're all going to stand before God one day and answer this question, what did you do with my son? My son, who came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and we're going to see Jesus in glory. And the only answer is this. We either reject him or we believed in him. There's no neutral ground. That's the option. You can't deny that. You can't ignore that. And someone might say, I don't believe in gravity. Okay, let's go up to the top of the building and you jump off. And guess what? They come to realize gravity is true. Well, when people die, they might say, well, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in God. They die. They find out that it's true. Your feelings don't change the truth. The Epicurean might say, I don't believe in a creator God. I don't believe in an afterlife. And he dies, and he stands before God, and he finds out that he was wrong. The Stoic might say, well, I believe I can get to God by my good works and by being a good person. And he does, he rejects Jesus and he dies and he stands before God and he finds out that he was wrong. It's the choice, the only choice that people have to make. Let's see how this ends, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed among them. However, some joined him and believed among them Dionysus, the era, however you say that, um, a woman named Demarius and others with them. So in Athens, we see some mocked. Some were curious. Oh, I'll hear more about that. And some believed. And that's always the way it is. Those who mocked, those who were just curious, who went away, when they died, they came to realize Paul was right. I'll close with this. You know, there's only one time in all the Bible where God lets hell speak to man. It happens when a rich man goes and dies and he goes to hell. And it's so horrible there. He Begs, let me go back and tell my family to avoid this place. His message is, and he doesn't want to go back and go, hey, hell's amazing. It's a party. I've saved you a seat. No, it's like, this is horrible. Let me go back and warn my family. God doesn't let him go back. 
That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Maybe that's the day for you.